All right. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for coming. Uh, welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. I have the amazing Erica Hall with me today. Hello, Erica. Hello. It's it's fantastic to be here and to be having uh, something I think will be on the better uh, end of the spectrum of conversations <laughs> we were uh, contemplating having this week. Yes, we uh, we scheduled this uh, before the election. We are now in the, I would say, the midst of it. And we had no idea what we'd, we, we would be talking about uh, on this Friday. Uh, for those of you in the future, this is the Friday after the election uh, that, that wouldn't end. Um, so uh, just to, at the jump, I want to say this is David Dillon Thomas coming in from Media, Pennsylvania, the unceded land of the Lenape uh, people. Um, and uh, Erica, do you want to tell us where you're chiming in from? Yes, I'm coming from the unceded land of the Ohlone people, uh, also known as San Francisco. And uh, I had heard something uh, through through the Twitters, through the, the discords and the slacks that um, there's a group of uh, Lenape folks who are talking about how, like, you know, thanks for the land acknowledgement, but really make sure you don't focus on the land part of it because we don't really believe in ownership and we kind of don't want you to believe in ownership either. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting point. <laughs> uh, and so now I'm on this kick where I'm like, what does America look like without ownership? And the difficulty I'm having with that is illustrative in and of itself. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah just, try, try, just try that as a thought experiment. Um, I see people are, are, are typing their land acknowledgements into the chat. I appreciate that. So, Erica, well, first off, Erica, tell us who you are for those who, those who don't already know. Uh, uh, what, 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 what's important for us to kind of know about you for, for today? Um, let's see. I, I, I guess the important things, uh, for professional purposes, uh, the co-founder of Mule Design Studio and the author of Just Enough Research, now in its second edition, Yay. and Conversational Design. So, uh, Erica, what have you been thinking about lately? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, uh, I, I would say that the thing that has been particularly top of mind is where I was on election night uh, 2016, which was mm -hmm. at a conference in Berlin. And the uh, day after the conference uh, was when I was scheduled to give my talk. And my talk was on uh, the pitfalls of being biased towards uh, quantitative data instead of qualitative data and how that can lead you astray. So if anyone is interested, they can uh, Google this talk and see me at my most uh, ironic and hungover uh, giving, giving this particular talk. And so what I've been thinking about, of course, watching the, po the polling come in and the, you know, the reporters reporting on the polling and everybody discussing and speculating the polling is why is polling still, yet polling and surveying and focus groups, all these techniques, why are they still uh, operating as the gold standard for understanding how people make decisions because they don't actually tell us what we need to know. So of course that has been uh, top of mind uh, continuously uh, lately. 
Yeah, and, and I would say like the irony is not only are they not good at telling us how people make decisions, but reporting on them can influence decisions. Hugely. <laughs> Hugely. Ah, yes. So bad, bad, nine kinds of bad. So if if polling can't, you know, unlock the secrets of the human heart, what can? Like what if we are actually endeavoring to understand how people make decisions, what should we be looking at? We should uh, we should be trying to see uh, people's lives and decisions from from their perspective. And the problem is it's not easily quantifiable. And that's what people are looking for. People are looking for numbers that they can place bets based on. And it's harder it's harder to make that leap from just really studying people to making predictions about how they might behave in certain contexts. Uh, than just assigning some, you know, numerical value to it. But I think it's, uh, it's more a truth, truthful, I'd say, in terms of really representing people's lives. So what you really do is, is you, because uh, I think one of the things that, one of the big mistakes with, with polling is it asks people to speculate or asks about mental states. And I'd say the best way, if your goal is to predict how people will uh, behave in certain situations, certain um, counterfactual or potential future situations. You look at how they've behaved in the past and why, and you don't ask them why, but you but you really look at um, at how decision making works and you know because I because I think we still want to put people like we're still talking red and blue which is ridic- this ridiculous dichotomy and um, and I think Ezra it sounds like Ezra Klein's new book which I haven't read but I heard an interview uh, gets at this um, a, a little bit but what you should be doing is saying okay uh, why you look at say past voting patterns and say, what factors influenced uh, who people voted for or what propositions they voted for and really like dig into past data in a more nuanced way. Well, it's almost as if you're saying that human behavior is complex. Uh, and context dependent. Yes. Well, and that makes it even worse, right? So, so one of the, um, I was talking to a guy who does uh, speculative design and he said, one of the hardest mm-hmm. things to get your head around is that human behavior is emergent. It's one of the most frustrating things mm-hmm. if you are in fact trying to make predictions. And, when, and, and, and the idea basically is that like, it is not a matter of uh, Joan is a housewife and she usually buys bounty you know, uh, towels. I don't know, uh, making up some scenario, but like, and then therefore I can assume that for the next six years, she's gonna buy these towels at this rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're not realizing that is in the moment when she's in the store and sees the towels, a whole bunch of things are happening at the same time that probabilistically, yeah, maybe that results in her buying that particular brand of paper towel, but on any other given day with any one of those little Mm -hmm. factors, you know, just changed just so will mean, oh no, she's not even going to buy paper towels this week, right? We don't get that. What we need in a given moment emerges in that moment. It's not, it's Mm -hmm. not like we wake up in the morning with a shopping list and then fulfill all of those things. And if we could just guess the shopping list, we'd be able to predict every move. Right. And you can't just look at demographics. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and so, there's been some some interesting work done. Uh, like years ago, there was a, a psychologist and researcher, Paco Underhill. Have you heard of him? Oh yeah, I, I he actually... did the work in shopping and redesigning yes. store yes. environments, and it was like if. Because because he looked at like what encouraged people to stay in stores and buy things, and one of the uh, tidbits that will stick in my mind forever is that if you're in a store and you're looking at merchandise and considering whether or not to purchase something, if if anything brushes against your butt, you are out of there. Like that's just like oh done now okay I'm leaving I'm leaving yeah because that just gives you this feeling of like uh I, I, like concern for your physical well-being or something but it was really yeah, yeah. just like he would he would watch people because he would stalk people through stores and 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 probably had a, a team and just look at what what factors seem to influence yeah. uh whether people stayed there and completed their transaction and i think he just noticed that like if something brushed against somebody's butt they immediately turned and like left the store and so when you designed the areas that, where you wanted to encourage people to spend time and linger and, and purchase than you wanted to, to clear the butt level. <laughs> I, a, that rings totally true. Cause I'm trying to picture if I'm in a store and I'm about to buy some and some brushes against my butt, I'm like, I automatically like looking for the exit. That makes, that makes sense. B, I want to see it. It wasn't probably an air table, but I want to see the spreadsheet with the tag, something brushed up against their butt. Yeah. I want to see the quantitative this many times it happened. (laughs) And for this many times, like, I just want to see that Mm -hmm. spreadsheet so badly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, And there's, there's so much uh, social science about, uh, especially about juries and how juries mm. died and how judges sentence people. And it's like, did they eat? Does somebody need to pee? Is there like something else going on in the background? And I think the best way to influence human behavior is to start with some humility. And I think this is Mm. the big barrier for people, say, uh, politicians or anybody with anything to sell or anybody who's like an an advocate for some social cause or for environmentalism or getting people to like change their behaviors so they're more carbon neutral or anything like that is uh, is you have to acknowledge that we're all emotional decision makers and we're not rational at all. And then we do a lot of uh, backwards justification. Mm-hmm. For example, I think um, I'm not going to get the total specifics right, but when the US was in World War II, uh, deciding what city in Japan to nuke, Kyoto was on that list. But one of the officials, I don't know if it was one of the the heads of a branch of military, the secretary of state, but one of the really high ranking officials had honeymooned in Kyoto. Wow. And that and so that was that influenced um, uh, them choosing to not nuke Kyoto. That's, it's that's... things like that. And, and we see this all the time. And then we talk about we talk about it as though humans are making decisions based on the data. And ideally, if you're really thinking critically, uh, like you should be using evidence as a part of that. But it, but it's very uh, we make snap decisions all the time. And it has so much to do with our emotional state. And even like even things like when people are making charitable donations, uh, studies have shown that if you uh, 
uh, present too much information, like make the case about, oh, your donation will uh, have this monetary impact and really break it down. Uh, that sort of pitch will perform less well than look at the cute baby tiger, look at the cute baby human, etc. Yeah, it's, I wonder if a lot of that thinking comes from when we're kids, we get this assumption and everybody breaks this at some point in their life, but we have this assumption that adults know what they're doing right? Because they're the ones who have power over us. And we just mm-hmm. have this like image in our head of like, when, when I am an adult, right? I will have power mm-hmm. and I will know what I'm doing. But like th- th- that these decisions are being made rationally. And I always like to ask people, how old were you when you figured out that adults were just making it up as they went? Oh, I was quite young. Yeah. Some people figure young. it out sooner. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, and, and for me, it's been a journey of not just adults, probably in my twenties or so, who knows, like when I figured out that adults didn't know what they were doing, but that as I, I was in the foundation world for a while and that put me in proximity to some fairly powerful people. And just Mm -hmm. as an aside, it's amazing the doors that open when people think you, they can get money from you. (laughs) (laughs) I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been two degrees of separation from Steven Spielberg as a result of this. So, (laughs) um, but what I find even in the highest echelons of power that you can imagine, we're like, okay, I get that these knuckleheads don't know what they're doing, but I'm sure the people at company X or government organization Y or echelon of power Z have got it figured out. And it's like the higher goes like, no, you are literally at the same level of understanding what's going on as, you know, Jake in middle management. Like you, n- none of you know what you're doing. Yeah. I find that really takes the pressure off. Cause I think, I think there have been a couple of levels of realizing that one is, you know, when you realize it, when you're young, uh, and I think you, you continuously realize it first, Oh, the, the parents and then the, maybe the teachers in school. Then I think there was a moment when I was in college and I was, I was taking uh, one of my philosophy courses and I read what one of the assigned books was the professor's book. And I wrote a paper in which I disagreed with one of something, a framing that she used in her book. And uh, she came back to me and she said, wow, I hadn't thought about it like that before. And I think you're right. And that was like a moment of, whoa, not even these, these professors you know, know, know everything. But then, yeah, then, you know, we, we, yeah, we've, def- we've been in, we've worked with a lot of foundations and these organizations and you work with it. Uh, when you have a small company and you think, oh, the people in these large operations must have figured something out to grow their organization to this size. We're little and we're more casual. And of course they're huge. And you go in and no, not at all. So it's the same thing with like small organization. The people in a small organization might very well know as much or more than the leadership of a very large organization, but there's a certain amount of, there's jargon, there's rituals, there's a culture and as we've seen, like if you look like somebody's image of a leader, uh, then uh, people will project onto you all of these uh, characteristics and attributes and qualities that you might completely lack. And then you just play the role. And uh, yeah, and this, this cuts both ways, you know, with the, the, the um, you know, Dunning-Kruger situation, right? Yeah. Where people who have too little domain knowledge to 
know how ignorant they genuinely are seem very confident and then and then they uh, benefit from this bias and then the people who are more likely to have imposter syndrome or question themselves are often the people with the a, a vast amount of knowledge in the field yeah and i and i think that because the other thing i tended to notice especially when i was looking working at like you know uh very very successful seeming organizations right and the first layer of it is you get in there and you realize that um people People were really good at one thing, and that being really good at that one thing got them so far. But the reason you're being called in is because that was really the only thing they were good at, mm-hmm. which is kind of a double-edged sword because now if you want to convince them, well, if you really want to go any further, you're going to need to get good at this thing. And they're thinking, well, no, I got where I am by being good at that thing. So why would you mm-hmm. want me to change? But the other layer of that I'm really starting to, to, to get a feel for as I – even the thing they're good at, I know that there are people out there who are better at it. Mm-hmm. And so it's this thing of like, I think we underestimate the degree to which we are all living in a giant casino. <laughs> Absolutely. And some people got lucky mm-hmm. and they're not stupid, but they're not smart, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the degree to which they got lucky is very decoupled from the degree to which they are good at X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. It's definitely influenced by things like, oh, there's like, you know, a shorter line to get to the table if you're white. But <laughs> it is not at all dependent upon how smart they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you could, there, there is a kind of intelligence, but it's not, and it's, again, I think we, I think we have a bad model of decision-making. I think mm. we have a bad model of, like, human nature, Right. We have this sort of like folk wisdom we've cobbled together that the, the science doesn't bear out, like how people make decisions, how people behave, how people act. Um, and I think there and, and in terms of intelligence, you know, if you have uh, verbal acumen, people think mm-hmm. you're so smart. But if you're if you're less verbal, people people think you're stupid. Um, because that's for for a lot of people, that's the signal they look for. Uh, uh, in terms of assessing intelligence, and uh, and of course, this has been a huge problem and played into white supremacy and the educational opportunities offered to people based on standardized testing and things like that with a certain a certain type of uh, verbal skill. Uh, but I think there is an intelligence, a kind of intelligence that is being in the right place at the right time and figuring that out and figuring how to be there. Yeah. And I think that is something we don't call intelligence at all, but I think it's a skill and maybe it's something that operates maybe beneath the level of conscious understanding. Another thing we totally overvalue uh, is our, our conscious uh, understanding our conscious reasoning. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think some people it's like, oh, you're really smart, you're really shrewd. And it's just like, oh, you just have a sense for how to place yourself in opportunities. And I think it's also a numbers game too. And that's, it's a, it's like, what is that survivorship bias? Or, I don't know the right name for mm-hmm. that bias where mm-hmm. I think if you do something, uh, uh, like if you really just do something enough times, a certain percentage of those, it'll work out. And so the people who really put themselves out there more will seem luckier or will be luckier. And maybe it's not that a high, they've had a higher percentage of hits, but they've just, uh, taken advantage of a higher number sheer number of opportunities yeah and i I, i've seen that in my own life right like when people ask me to what do you attribute your success like i'm always very careful to give you know luck and and i include in luck the people i have met 
Like I, I, I don't make it a solo gig. And then the other half though, I will attribute to, you know, my non is persistence. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like my podcast sort of helped, you know, turn something into a book, but I did like over a hundred episodes of that podcast, you know, once a week for years <laughs> and, you know, I was glad to do it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was persistent about it. And, you know, same thing with my speaking gigs, same thing with this, same thing with that. It's like, if you look at any one thing that I found successful in my life, I can trace it back to something I did a hundred times, <laughs> you know, Yeah. <laughs> and, and only 90 and only one of those nine, you know, 99 of them didn't turn into anything, but one of them did. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, you've, you've been a guest on, on quarantine book club, you know, the zoom interviews we've done with authors, uh, during, uh, the pandemic and the dominant theme from all of these, cause we've talked to so many different types of authors. The big bummer is when you talk to them about their work, it turns out that they just kept at it and did a lot of work, just a lot of work, a lot of writing. Like the people who do literature, it's because they did a lot of writing and they kept writing. They started out, they were bad, they got better. The people who are artists and illustrators and cartoonists. Oh, at first I couldn't draw, I kept drawing, I got better. Yeah, or I worked on this, I researched this book for 10 years, I put it aside. Oh, the right, no publisher would take it. And then all of a sudden my topic and current events coincided in some way that finally people wanted to publish me yeah so yeah I, but I, the I, bummer I, is it's all work it's all work yeah i um i think we underestimate that so let's let's talk about james baldwin shall we <laughs> <laughs> so so you and i were chatting the other day because you had just rewatched um i am not your negro i mm-hmm. i had just been you know, enamored of him for a while, ever since I saw that movie, actually. Um, And it was just one of those things like, yeah, I feel like Baldwin has a lot to say to us right now. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Because I remember um, uh, I read Baldwin, I think in college. Okay. Uh, Like, go go tell it on a mountain, right? Is that the the sort of novel? That's that's actually one of the, so I've read that and I've read, and I've seen that movie and I've seen any number of like little interview snippets. I still haven't read uh, next the fire next time. That's my next project, but yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I have not read that, and um, yeah. So I've and and you see the quotes, and especially now that the quotes have been coming back, and I feel like he isn't spoken at, like like when we talk about our like Black American heroes and mm-hmm. leaders, he he he's not as like I think famous as broadly as he should be like everybody goes to mlk like constantly for the quotes and everything like that uh but i think not enough people just like talk about him constantly because especially especially watching um i'm not not your negro it was it felt like he was saying these things today and it looked like all the accompanying footage because this Mm -hmm. this documentary by this uh haitian director combines uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, reading from this unpublished work, and then then there are other quotes from James Baldwin, uh, overlaid on top of a lot of footage from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I think. And the the police confrontations, the white protesters protesting uh, uh, integration of schools and things like that, it looked like it could have been filmed last week. Uh, so yeah, it's, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that Baldwin that really strikes me about him is the degree to which 
he centers like the responsibility for social justice and lays it at the feet of white people. Like it's this constant, like, yeah, I know you're coming to me to talk about this stuff, but you get that you need to figure this out. Um, and there's, I just threw something into the the chat here, but there's a guy named um, uh, Eddie S. Gloud. I don't know how to pronounce his name, Jr. Um, who um, AOC like retweeted some footage of him on MSNBC. And it is like Baldwin level fire. Cause he's saying basically the same thing, like the upshot. And I highly encourage you to go check out this like three minute clip. It's like packed so much truth in, but the upshot of it basically is we keep going through this same cycle generation after generation of white people with a shocked look on their face saying, we did what? <laughs> and the reason we keep going through it again and again is that there's never any reckoning. We are very good at uh, deliberate, willful ignorance. We are very, very good at just not dealing with it. Like, I think the question that spurred all is like, is this unique to America, this sort of racial situation? He said, like, the racism is not unique, but the ability, the drive, the the desperation, the vigor with which we run away from our past and deny it to the point mm-hmm. where each generation has to learn it all over again. That's American. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I will say the thing about being in Berlin for the 2016 election was that, of course, we'd, we'd planned this whole vacation afterwards because we had assumed a different outcome. Uh, and what we ended up doing is touring uh, the greatest hits of um, uh, Hitler and uh, East Germany, right? Mm-hmm. We went to the, the uh, Topography of Terror Museum at the Wall. Uh, we went to the Stasi Museum, all of this. And what what was really striking was the degree to which uh, the uh, Germans, particularly in Berlin, held their history up and out and put it in your face, right? We went to go get to the S-Bahn station uh, to catch a train. And there's a statue uh, commemorating the children, the Jewish children who'd been sent to the camps. Like, so every day, if you're commuting on that rail line, uh, you see the statue. You walk into the English language section of a bookstore and it's like, welcome English speakers. Would you like to read about Hitler? That was our guy. That was our bad. And and that really, really made me think about, and especially since then, we've had all these discussions about Confederate monuments. And it's like, wow, we are commemorating the myth, not the reality. And we haven't dealt with that. And until we do, we I think we cannot move forward as a country until we say, and, and I think we are, little baby steps right mm-hmm. baby we're getting there like we're changing flags we're pulling down statues we're saying hey these these aren't the people we should commemorate but the fact that we as a country are still clinging to old south and not saying no we should be commemorating um uh the the people who were enslaved and the acts of uh progressive liberation and all the things we did bad and wrong we should have those in front of our faces every day and not say that like it's it's not like you know um 
that's all that America has to talk about. But that has to be the thing that we, that has to be the framing is all of that was bad. And I feel like we as a country have not agreed that slavery was bad, the civil war is bad. And these sound like such kindergarten topics. But if you look around and you look at the discussions that we're having, clearly we do not all agree as a country, like most, like, like it should be like 99.9% people agree as a country that some things were bad that were bad. We have a president who will not denounce white, uh, white supremacy. And he got into power. <laughs> yeah. And many, many people, and even if you want to say, well, he didn't have the chance to do that before he was elected. He has now, and still it is a close race. <laughs> what does that tell you <laughs> other than... We live in a deeply racist and sexist country. See, that, that's the other thing that, like, for me anyway, has really coalesced over the last four years. I was talking to a friend of mine who was, you know, in that general state of liberal bewilderment at why, why people be so racist. And I just sort of – and it just sort of bubbled up in me. I just said to him, America is a deeply racist and sexist country. And I never actually said that out loud before. I think I had thought it for a long time, mm-hmm. but it finally – and as I said it, I'm like, oh, shit, that's true. And if you create political strategy with that as your cornerstone, you can see Trump coming a mile away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's more like, how is he, how was he not elected before now? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and things like Obama become the anomaly, not Trump. Trump's the, yeah. anomaly. he's not the anomaly. Um, yeah. But I think that's an important, I think that's an important thing to foreground. And yeah, I think, we don't because we don't hold our history right up in front of us, and instead we we, we mythologize and we we try to mm-hmm. pitch. We keep trying to pitch America. Mm-hmm. America is yeah. just this never-ending sales pitch, and yeah. and as a result, we never actually sit down and say, "Yeah, that's great, that's great." Like, let's assume we all want to be here. Now let's talk about what actually happened. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you can stop. You can stop selling, <laughs> please. Let's just yeah. talk about what actually happened. Yeah, and I think I think that was uh, some some of the most. Uh, masterful part of this documentary was the juxtaposition of James Baldwin's words with like the pictures, like there, there were selections. Uh, what was it? Oh, that I'm not gonna remember the name of the movie, but one of those, those movies from like the sixties where all the white people are in their modest bathing suits, frolicking and having picnics and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and talk about like the, yeah, you can't you can't talk about how we're the land of freedom because the only people who get all of that, the freedoms, the people who get the freedoms are are the white people. Um, yeah, and then it concludes in that really powerful way uh, with um, Baldwin's words about the fact that it's like oh this role, this uh, role that has been created for Black people in America that's not us that's like you have created yeah. this role for yourself and then assigned it to people who look like me because of something like like you need to really think about why you need uh, people who look like me to be in that role for you as opposed yeah. to just like hey let's all live and let's all let's all feel like we're all like we're all Americans like that's cool but no no there's something there's something about that going back to that notion of like adults don't know what they're doing I think what's the scariest thing about that is even if white people were to sit down and say, okay, let's, let's reckon with why did we invent the N-word? Why did we 
put black people in this in this role? Why do we need it? Why did we why did we need it? I don't think they've actually figured it out. <laughs> like I don't think there's some white guy with a book somewhere masterminding it all saying like this is how white supremacy works mm-hmm. and I'm going to pull this lever here and that there's no guy behind the curtain. It's 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 just a bunch of like drunk good old boys who are inheriting, you know, what their parents did. I mean, I, I I feel like they don't really know why it's on it's on autopilot by now. Yeah, like white supremacy is on autopilot, and there's people mm-hmm. who are more in favor of it mm-hmm. and, and see how it benefits them more than others do, and 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 really genuinely like it. But I don't think they've any of them have really. White America needs to go into therapy, like they need to yeah. sit, they need to go into therapy and work their shit out and stop taking their shit out on us. Like that, that's what it keeps coming back to for me. And, 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 and white America just generation after generation refuses to do it. This is actually why mm-hmm. I am very in heart, heartened by the fact that at the very least, the generation I see coming up is much more open about the idea of therapy. Like mm-hmm. there, there's much less yeah. of a stigma the younger mm-hmm. you go around the idea of therapy. Um, yeah. That alone, I think, is a positive development. But yeah, but that's what it feels like. It's like if white America would just work out its freaking issues <laughs> – most of which probably have to do with capitalism, I feel like we'd be in a better place. <laughs> yeah. Well, capitalism and religion. And this was mm. this was the other place where, where like Baldwin really went in. He went after white Christians. Mm. Hard. And if you see, like you see all of the evangelicals breaking for Trump. And and I think I think the people on the, the left remain confused by this. I think mm. I think all of the the crying about hypocrisy is so missing the point right because it is about because because they they're like but you look at the bible and jesus says all these things and they're not doing those things well it's like no you go to um max weber right and the oh god what's the book about the capitalism and the protestantism you go you go to that um and uh and you see that the white supremacy the uh, the sexism, the patriarchy, and the capitalism are the thing, and it uses the idiom of the New Testament, mm-hmm. right? That's just the style on what the core of that is. And I think people who look at it from the outside think about it the other way. They're like, no, but the core is like, like Jesus saying, be cool to the poor, and then it got corrupted. And it's like, no, the core is that you're racist and you like making money and uh, you like women to be in their place. And then you put the Jesus coding on it. Yeah, I, I grew up in, in the evangelical sphere. I was the evangelical sphere. And I can tell you right now, they do believe that they are being loving, right? If they are anti-abortion, they're being loving toward uh, fetuses. If they are... Um, uh, down on um, any kind of welfare state, right? They are being loving because they know that uh, welfare states infantilize black people, right? And these will be black evangelicals telling you this, mm-hmm. right? That uh, the welfare state uh, infantilizes black people and we are being loving by taking away that social safety net, right? Like they do think they are acting in accord with the loving nature of the Bible and helping out the poor. Like that's the piece I think people don't, to your point, people don't get. And one of the most amazing studies I saw um, back in the day, the, the thing that was basically trying to understand, do people pick 
their their political views based on their religion. They were trying to understand if there's a, a connection there. And what they found is, by and large, it's the opposite. You have a political stance, and then your flavor of religion usually follows behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even like social theory that goes one step further and says um, ideologies follow personality, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So you're not uh, an asshole because you're a fascist. You're a fascist because you like to bully people. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. that was, and that was the best game in town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the, the studies about the relationship of like physical disgust to yeah, yeah. conservative views. Like it just, it comes from this, like you have this very visceral feeling and then you tack some abstract descriptors on top of that. So I, I want to talk about this notion, this tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it stems from a discussion we had about a, almost a year ago. About, about a year ago, I was in town and we were chatting. You were talking about like wanting to just blow up design. And I'm like, okay, sounds cool. Tell me more. Um, and, and it was largely around this idea of uh, the, like the, the business model and how traditional design ignores that. Like when we go into consults or we're in an organization. And then not too long after that, there was this tweet that I'm not going to get exactly right, but it was along the lines of for design to be successful, it needs to have the tools to interrogate capitalism. What mm-hmm. does that mean? Uh, what that means is that I, I believe that a lot of people are interested in design and design research because they're drawn to this set of, what is called humanist values. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the way that, that designers talk to each other, uh, there seems to be this, this belief that, okay, we go and we work for businesses, but our, our job is to bring these humanist values into the business. And if we're good enough at our jobs, we will change the business. And uh, my, uh, let's call it my hypothesis, my theory, uh, I think it's to the level of a the theory because uh, I think I've found a lot of evidence for it, is that um, that those designers who, who go into an organization and any business has an underlying model, right? A way it makes money um, to a greater uh, and lesser degree of, um, you know, exploiting people or extracting resources or, or whatever. And um, I, I think whatever the work that the people who come in with the humanist values, the designers do, uh, bends to that underlying model. Like they can't fundamentally change it. Like we've seen this in like media organizations, like ad supported media organizations. We've seen this in social media. We've seen this in all of these like rent seeking startup kind of companies, like the food delivery, the, um, the ride hailing apps and things like that. And so what happens is you just use you end up as a designer using what you know about people and about appealing to people to kind of lay a trap for them and to sugarcoat and also make the people who are customers feel good and feel like they're these humanist values. I mean, look at how much virtue uh, people ascribe to Apple, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel, it just sort of feels like Apple is a more virtuous company because they, they seem to represent all these humanist values in their product. 
And I think the products are like easier to use all stuff. But Apple has these Foxconn factories. It's all bad. It's all trying to get you to buy a new phone every year. And they're so valuable, right? They're so valuable because they've managed to uh, exploit design and build up their, their brand like this and have this huge halo of like Apple's somehow good. But if you really dig into it, you're like, Apple's not really, are they more virtuous? Are they really more virtuous? If you look at the more virtuous leader, right? At least Bill Gates is a philanthropist, right? Steve Jobs never did philanthropy. Um, and, and so I think, I think designers need to go deeper that's it. And, and really look at the underlying model because your, uh, uh, your design is only as human-centered as the business model, right? Mm. If the business model doesn't, um, isn't in ethical, if the business model uh, exploits people, like that's the limiting factor of your design. And I don't think designers really wrestle with that. And I'm not saying... Designers, even if you have this consciousness aware, awareness, then you can um, necessarily change that. But I just want, uh, like, if if being a designer means working with intent, you can't make intentional choices uh, if you don't have a, a, a clearer view of things and you're not operating on the myth. That's why I will say one of my pet peeves is designers or anybody saying that I work for a brand. Because if you say you work for a brand, you're saying you work for the myth as opposed to I work for a business. I work for an organization, mm. right? Going back to like the, the myths, right? There's like the story we tell about America. There's a story we tell about the, the businesses we work for and with. Well, and it's funny too, right? Because I feel like that is a, especially the older the businesses, right? Like that it almost becomes your job to support the myth of the company as opposed to the reality of the company. And so, and I think we fall into that very easily because that's what we're used to. We're used to ignoring history in favor of the myth. Mm -hmm. I, I, by the way, I, I, I quoted <laughs> that. I just wrote that down, what you said. Uh, I want to say it again. Your design is only as human centered as your business model. I want that on t-shirts. I want people to remember that. <laughs> Cause like, I believe in human centered design, but only mm -hmm. if it's actually human centered. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. And I think, I think designers, the other, the other side of that, the sort of more advanced part of that is I think designers have the skill to design better business models, mm. but um, because, because all a business model is, is an interaction, right? I have something um, that ha that I think has value to you out there in the world and I want you to give me some value back, right? That's that's an interaction. It's an exchange. It's the original. Like, why do we have society at all? It's because we had excess value to trade, right? Mm. Why do we have cities and ports and all this good stuff? And and there's nothing. And I think the other thing designers have to get over is an idea that like talking about business and money is like bad and dirty. I think there's like a hygienic barrier designers want to keep up. And they're like, oh, I'm over here on the side of the good people. And just because it's just because I'm doing design makes me somehow a more virtuous worker, but that's not true. That's not true at all. Uh, and so once you acknowledge that, you know, any design is in service of the business. So you might as well like really interrogate who you're working for. Then you have a hope of, of doing something good, but you have to acknowledge that like selling things is good. Making money's like good. 
right? Or can, or can be good. It's not bad. Let's just say it's not bad. Let's mm-hmm. say business is not inherently bad just because it's business. Um, and, uh, and I think that, um, and they think, okay, well, if I'm designing businesses and not just designing like the pretty little part, uh, that's like the lure on the angler fish, mm-hmm. um, that's really good work and it's deeper work, but, uh, but it's, I, I think it's, doesn't match the sort of set of like decisions and concerns where designer designers want to stay in like the playpen. Right? Yeah. And it's, and it's ironic too, because that's not the very first encounter I had with ideas of human centered design was the uh, 2010 version of the IDEO human factors toolkit. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. And it was all about sort of like, you know, ethnographic user research and it wasn't to make the mouse, it was to help a village in Africa. Like the mm-hmm. whole case study was this deep embedded months long, we're gonna hang out with these folks in Africa. And rather than walk in and say, hey, here's a bunch of shit you don't need. It's no, we're gonna sit down with you and figure out what you need and then make something that is actually gonna be useful for you. Like just the, the core fundamental principle of before you design something for somebody, talk to them first, right? Mm-hmm. And the goal was not to make a million dollars. The goal was to help this community, right? Yeah. And to me, like that is the roots of design. And you can go far enough back. Like um, mm-hmm. a friend of mine, um, uh, JT Koble, helped uh, inform a lot of the, the the historical research on my book. And I was sort of like, yeah, we've been talking about this since Bauhaus. We've been talking about this since, mm-hmm. since design was a thing. It was always in relation to social good, right? Mm-hmm. And where is it related to that? And that's actually a very old idea. It's a, I won't say it's a new idea to sort of think that, oh, no, design is this pristine thing and then trying to separate out art and commerce. I think that's the myth yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that that design approach is trying to tie into. And it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But, but I think, I think the other, the other side of things, um, like none of, I think none of the things that I would like designers to think more about are conceptually difficult, Mm. but it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the program of not wanting to let go of the myth, because when Mm. you let go of the myth, you then have responsibility for the reality. And I think that's like, if, if you want to talk about like white Americans or designers or anybody who's operating this privileged position, that's, I think that's kind of what's at the core of it, of like, ah, but the myth allows me to only think about the fun parts, you know, of life, really, um, and not have responsibility for, for the bad parts. Yeah, I, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm trying to find, I saw a question in here. I want to make sure we get to any of the questions. Um, uh, Hasna, do you want to ask your question yourself? Or you don't want me to read it? Uh, I forgot my question, so please it was read about, it. Oh, okay. It was about uh, what are some companies with ethical business models? So that that's just, that's the question? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think any any company that provides something of uh, genuine value and doesn't destroy the planet while they're doing it um, and is like truthful about what they're offering... Uh, one of my favorite examples of an, uh, a business that can be a very ethical type of business is like an independent restaurant. Right? Mm. Restaurants are great. They, they provide food. They often provide somebody's like first employment. You know, if you don't have 
a strong um, uh, educational background or you're switching careers or you have a crisis in your life, it's like, oh, there's work that you can do. Like a lot of people have kind of reset their lives by working in restaurants. I think restaurants um, are a community gathering places, you know, like when we could do that. And, and there could be many, many positive effects and they have really, they can have really strong supplier networks and the degree to which a restaurant operates ethically can have huge multiplier effects, right? In terms of supporting farms, supporting neighborhoods, it, it providing jobs, right? That's a, that's a great business model. That's why I have such a bone to pick with um, the, the venture backed delivery services that are parasitic on restaurants. Cause I feel, so, I feel so strongly that running a restaurant is so hard and you're doing something like good in the world in general. Um, if you want a software company, uh, I think harvest the time tracking people I've worked with them and, and they're a good company. And I think one of the things that allows people to be a good company is not taking uh, a, a large amount of, of venture capital. Right, because then you're beholden to then what you actually are is you're an investment vehicle, not just a company. Because a good company is a, is a business that like runs as a business and and doesn't just use the business as a way to make investors wealthy. Going back to the capitalism part, right? Like you can have a business without the like selling stock to people outside the company and turning your business into a, a gambling table and, and where the value of your business is measured in terms of the share price, not what you're actually providing to the community or paying your workers, right? A lot of times those are opposed. Like you, your company is worth more if you're squeezing out more profits to return to the investors as opposed to paying your workers, right? Uh, so like Harvest is a privately uh, owned company. I think MailChimp is still like a, a privately owned company, right? And uh, and they seem they seem pretty good. What was but, it? Uh, MailChimp, the um, MailChimp. the mailing list people. Uh, you know, because they went into an area that a lot of people thought was really uh, skeezy, and they tried it. They tried to help make it better. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the things I really like about about uh, Harvest to, to keep using Harvest as an example of a software company that I think is. Uh, human-centered and ethical is that there are uh, what they do is they help people track their time, you know, for billing purposes or to help run a company. Um, and there are some time tracking companies that operate more in a surveillance mode in terms mm. of they watch everything they do and they might report, uh, you know, to management, like what you're spending your time on. Harvest won't do that. And they also really like encourage people who work with them to use them as a tool to make sure people aren't working too much, right? So, so when you talk to people who are like Harvest customers, a lot of times they they say, "Well, I want to make sure that people aren't overworking themselves," as opposed to squeezing maximum value out of your workers. Yeah. Yeah, I always feel like that's a very dodgy prospect when you're doing work because there's a whole industry around uh, people management tools. And I have yet to find one, although Harvest maybe, I'd be very curious to, to learn about their research, but I've yet to find one where like the employees are actually the, the like the research base is around or the, the, the mission or user story is around worker empowerment as opposed to corporate empowerment. Because <laughs> um, I think that would be a really, that would be a really interesting approach. So um, 
we've got a couple more questions uh, related. I want to ask this one first because it's related to what we were saying about like ethical businesses. But a Mike Montero has a question about growth, ethical growth models. Would you like to ask that or did I just ask it? Hello, David. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, Ms. Hall kind of skirt, kind, kind of touched on this in uh, her last reply. Um, but, you know, you, you hear people ask this a lot about, like, who, who's got an unethical business model. And, I mean, if, if, if you boil it down, like, you know, Uber's business model isn't unethical. Um, it's, it's the way that they run it. And it's, 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 uh, so can you talk a little bit about the difference, like how even an ethical business model can be, uh, run in an unethical way and, uh, and, and how, how a designer can tell like, Oh, wait, I thought this place sounded fine, but it's actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like that's a whole other hour, (laughs) but a, a quick and easy way to tell is you can um uh you can sketch this out on a whiteboard with a couple lines really is like thinking about the interaction over time like designers are all used to sketching out um user stories right uh, customer stories And, and somebody in the chat mentioned like service design does this but i think what service design often doesn't do is line all these things up like you can say okay what thinking about who gets value out of a system. You can track the, the interactions over time, like using touch points or whatever, and, and draw out like the value to the business, the value to the different participants, like the, the worker and the customer and all of that, and see uh, where the trade-offs are. Because um, you take something like... Um, a company I, I worked with that works with restaurants uh, that's called Toast, right? And, and I think they're a really good ethical business because they provide tools and software for restaurants, like point of sale services, things like that for restaurants. And their model is such that the success of their customer is aligned with their own business success, right? Mm-hmm. If restaurants are profitable, then their business becomes more profitable. They're really in alignment. And it's the same thing with like if the customer, if the restaurant's customer is then happy because they're able to order more, like they're happy, like the restaurant's happy, toast is happy. So I think they're really, they're an ethical business. Um, If you look at, um, at Uber, right there, what's good for the company is not good for the driver, right? Their interests are not aligned because in an ideal world, they would pay the driver nothing. Cause I'd say, I'd say you look at the model, the model isn't exactly the same as a, as a taxi model because what they've done is they've hidden all the costs. Cause a great way to tell like, um, like what, how ethical something is, is like who, who has what visibility into the business for decision-making. Um, but I'd say the interests of the driver and the interests of Uber are not aligned because Uber would like the drivers to drive as much as possible, make as little money as possible, um, and then and then have the profit. And it's like, who's creating value in that situation, right? Who's creating it and who's extracting it? I would say the drivers are bringing like so much to the value. They bring their own vehicle. They bring their own time and their labor and their like knowledge of the city or whatever. And then... Um, 
uh, Uber extracts that. Uh, and they're not even making money. I think that's the thing where it's like, also a problem is they're still losing money on every ride, even while they're hiding information about expenses from the driver and not paying them enough and manipulating them through the software to get them to drive more, things like that. So it's like, if you're doing that much exploitation and manipulation and still not like making a profit, maybe what you don't have is a business. Maybe what you have is um, a wealth transfer vehicle. And there was a really good piece in, I think the American Statesman about the fact that Uber was much more a political campaign than an actual business. I think things we call tech companies aren't <laughs> tech companies. And it's really, really good. Like I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, things we call tech companies aren't tech companies. And a lot of things we call businesses are not businesses in the way we think about them in terms of like, I sell you a thing at a profit. Like you get a thing of value, I get a profit. I mean, things are much more complicated than that. But I think a lot of times the business is just an excuse for, for concentrating and moving wealth around and the people making the money aren't actually creating the value. Yeah, and, and venture capital thrives on that, right? Like there's the mm -hmm. whole idea of how much wealth in this country is generated by an actual exchange of goods and services or value and how much wealth in this country is generated by money. Mm -hmm. money <laughs> like and it's it's ridiculously very much the yeah. latter is how much is, is 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 the majority of how money is made uh, we are technically over time but if folks are willing to stay around erica in particular we got a couple more questions we're gonna, we're, sure. gonna we're gonna do this um uh so there's a few here let me go back a bit so um a lot of people voted for well let me ask uh rebecca do you want to come on camera for this you didn't specify uh or do you want me to read it Sorry, I didn't follow instructions. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I can, yeah. I, well, I was, I mean, I was having a conversation with a, one of my UX colleagues earlier today, and we've been thinking a lot about sort of the, the things that designers and researchers can bring to the table when it comes to things around decision-making and understanding human behavior and all these problems that we're seeing in the world. And, you know, um, so it's a tough question, but it's sort of so many people are voting for what is not in their best interest. And so I'm thinking about there's cognitive biases sort of related to that, but also, yeah, like what, are there things that even we could do within the profession to help address some of that, whether it's, you know, disinformation is obviously a big piece of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big lofty question, but any thoughts on what do we do for those people who are making decisions, going to the ballot box and voting for something that's really not in the best interest of themselves mm -hmm. individually, their families, their societies, et cetera. What I, what I would say, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest mistake that uh, uh, people uh, who want to help other people make decisions that are in their best interest, the biggest mistake they make is when you talk about information, right? And making decisions based on information, people don't make decisions based on information. And I think that can be the hardest thing for those of us who work in the world of evidence and data um, uh, to deal with. So the best thing that you can do, it goes back to, to embracing sales. The best thing that you can do is not make the case for why they're acting not in their best interest. That's terrible. But that is especially like progressives, like love, like this is the, pro oh gosh, I could go on this forever. It's like, it's like the obsession with facts and fact checking. And of course, 
fact-checking is important in journalism, but facts will never change minds. And I think that is so infuriating for researchers. And this is, this is so much of my consulting and training practice is going to researchers and people working in design and saying, uh, stop trying to prove your case with facts. The best thing that you can do to help people is, is tell them a story, tell them a good story that gets them excited that is in their best interest, but the, but just telling them the fact is like a lot of times you're, you're going to insult them. Um, if the facts don't fit into their pre-existing narratives, they're just going to reject them. Like we're seeing this with clients, climate science. We see it with vaccination, all this stuff. What you've got to do is a good sales job, right? You go to like Dale Carnegie was writing about this like a hundred, 80, hundred years ago, whatever, and how to um, make friends and influence people. Those principles absolutely apply. So you think, how can I sell to somebody the thing that is good for them? Like, I think, um, I think Obama did a, such a terrible job explaining and selling his healthcare plan. Like that was like, ah, uh, so hard to watch and listen to. Cause I think it came from a place of like being so like fact oriented. It's such a wonk right? Instead of like putting on a show, like you look at what Boris Johnson did before Brexit with the bus, with how much um, like money was going to the EU or whatever, the total lie like painted on the bus. Like those sort of ta tactics and techniques like, like nauseate people who want to live in the world of facts. But, um, but you have to think, how can I dress up the facts to be more appealing? Because the story, the lie is always going to be more appealing. Um, so you start with what do we want to do and, and the course of action you want to take should be based in facts, but then set those aside and say, how do we sell somebody? You know, you look at like, like how awesome Gwyneth Paltrow is at like selling total garbage to people. Right. And you're like, how do I come up with a better sales job? Right. For what's actually good for somebody recognizing that it's so much harder to, to sell the thing that's actually good for people. I, I think the other piece that that's really, well, there's two pieces that I think are really important to get right with in, in that endeavor. One is be very careful and thoughtful about even the idea of, I know what's best for you. Do not assume that is true. Yes. You can... I'd say the most virtuous <laughs> version of that, and I'll tell you a little story about it because, you know, storytelling works, um, is I was working with a client who I was convinced needed to take their content from behind a paywall. And I, you know, told them over and over again, nobody cares about paying for it. It's not doing you any good there, blah, 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 evidence this, evidence that, banging my head against the wall. Come back later and say, okay, we're going to take a totally different tack here. We're going to do some research and we're just going to talk to people and we're going to just report, hey, this is what people said they wanted out of that content, that their goals for it. And then we're going to, I'm just going to ask you, what, what do you actually want out of this? What is your goal? Why are you making this content? All right. So I'm going to have a list of your reasons and a list of their reasons. And then I'm going to say, okay, we're going to do a workshop, a little brainstorming session. And the goal is how might we use content to make these two lists happy, right? Go off, spend 20 minutes, do your little brainstorming exercise, come back, tell me what you come up with. One of the things they came up with was, oh, what if we took this stuff from behind the paywall? And I'm like, that is a great idea that you had. I'm glad you came up with that. 
right? To me, that's the most honest version of it because then it's like, I haven't tried to sell you on anything. I simply gave you a framework that led me to this conclusion. And if you think about it, that's what the scientific method is. The whole notion of the scientific method is, I have a theory about how this works. I'm going to try some shit. This is what I came up with. Why don't you try it? Tell me what you came up with, right? And what I like about that approach is, A, it's a little more scientifically accurate, but B, because I, I actually might be wrong. That might not actually be what's best for you, right? And there's just a chance, right? But then B, they will own that solution. So rather than, well, why are you voting this way? Well, because that person convinced me to. Well, did you consider this, 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 and this? Oh, I hadn't considered that. Let me go your way now, right? Versus, well, no, I came to this conclusion on my own, and you can't convince me otherwise, right? <laughs> it's a more resilient uh, behavior change because they originated it and they came up with the idea. Um, but those are like things I also like to think about when I'm thinking about like, is the goal, like, is the goal to get them to change their fundamental beliefs or is the goal to get them to change their behavior for a moment? And neither is necessarily a better or worse goal, but understand that they are different goals requiring different tactics. Um, we have a question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question from Madeline. Would you like to say your question out loud or do you want me to read it? Hey, this is Kay. Can y'all hear me? I can. Perfect. Uh, so, hi, I'm Madeline. Um, so, my question is How much do you think misinformation plays within cognitive bias? How do you think we, as designers, can clear up information, especially with qualitative, which is arguably a lot harder to clean up. Uh, <laughs> from my, kind of like my own personal experience uh, working with someone who I really admire who does a lot of this, uh, Kate Starbird. Uh, and then my own personal experience in the Vietnamese community about how a lot of them are hardcore Trump Trump supporters, and this is kind of like relating to Rebecca's point about how people vote against their best interest. And this is partially due to a lot of misinformation and mistranslation. So yeah, that was loaded, but. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's really hard. Um, because yeah, because I think, uh, one of the problems is that misinforming people can be very, very profitable, right? In the same way that we talk about like what, what's good for people, uh, doing things that are like, this is why the whole bringing back to design, the whole like ROI of design, like I hate that whole framing because uh, guess what? Doing things that are bad for people and unpleasant are often way more profitable than doing things that are good and right. And so, yeah, when you think about like misinformation and everything going on in like social media and all of that, there is like way more money to be made in, in spinning these myths and playing to people's fears than there is. Like, I think a lot of news organizations are really concerned now. Like CNN is like, wow, what are we gonna talk about when Trump's not in office? Um, so I don't think there's an, an easy solution other than one of the it is is try to try to build a positive story like think about what the behavior is because going back to what, what Dave was just saying about like the behavior and the mental state I think we conflate those too often and think oh if somebody has a certain belief they're going to take a certain action right that's behind all sorts of opinion polling and surveys and I'd say let go and I think this can be really hard 
for uh, designers and people in progressive politics. It's like, let go of people believing the right thing. If we could all just like let go of the mental state and say, what do we want them to do? Oh, you know what? We don't care. We don't care what they think. We care what they do. If you shift that and you're like, okay, and you reframe the question not to how do we get people to think Trump is bad, but how do we get people to like draw the line for Biden? That can be a really uh, simpler problem to solve. I'm not saying I have the answer to like, how do you get the Vietnamese community to not support Trump? Like that is a big, that is a big question outside my purview. But if it's like, how do we get people to like change this behavior or change the propensity to this behavior, take belief just off the table. Cause I think it's all like, oh, how do we, that, cause beliefs get pulled. Like, oh, how likely are you like a scale of one to 10? Um, you know, do you agree with this or that statement? What if you just took all of that off the table and you're like, okay, knowing first you learned about these people and you learn about their lives and you're like, okay, knowing what we know about their lives and their context and what they do and what their relationships are. How do we encourage these people not to take action A, but to take the opposing action B? That can be a much, much simpler problem to solve, uh, but it could be a hard pill to swallow because it's like, oh, they're still going to believe things. I wish they didn't believe, but maybe they'll do the thing you want them to do. Yeah. And you, you want to, ha- you want to divorce yourself. Like if it'll make you feel better about not changing people's beliefs, know that changing people's beliefs is a very patriarchal and insanely dangerous thing to do. <laughs> right. Like think about the, the godlike position you are in. If you can successfully change someone's belief, like, do you want that power? <laughs> right. Yeah. Versus like, you know, nudge. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and the other, the, the other piece that I meant to say this before, but it ties into this as well. If somebody believes a lie, it is very likely that that lie speaks to something that they want to be true. Right. So if somebody says that immigrants are stealing your jobs, that ties into a feeling of, I don't want to be responsible for I, I, it explains away why I don't have a job, mm-hmm. right? It gives me someone else to blame. It gives some form of control versus, oh, you don't have a job because of economic forces that are totally out of your control, some of which you may have voted for without knowing it. That's not a very fun story for me versus, oh, that brown guy over there, it's his fault. Okay, that is a way cleaner story. I, I, I want to believe in a world that has that kind of control and good mm-hmm. guys and bad guys, right? So- Factor that in when we're doing some of the storytelling, and I've told this story a lot of times and people are probably sick of it, but I'm gonna keep going because it's really, really illustrative of this fact, but it's the, it's the, the don't mess with Texas story, right? To me, it's the perfect example of this, right? So don't mess with Texas for the five of you who haven't heard me talk about it yet is uh, it started out as a anti-littering campaign. And after going back to the, you have to try a million things after a million things had failed uh, this one group settled on, Oh, we're going to cope with this ad campaign called Don't Mess With Texas, and it's going to tie the act of littering to messing with Texas. And the thing that everybody wanted to believe was that Texas is awesome. They still believe this, by the way. <laughs> Whether you're liberal, conservative, independent, if you live in Texas, Texas is awesome. That's one thing all of us can agree on. So if I can tie the act of littering as an affront to the great state of Texas, guess what? 
people, even good old boys, are going to stop littering. Now, have I turned those good old boys into environmentalists? No, I have not even a little bit changed their belief about whether or not the environment is worth saving or is even in danger to begin with. But did I get them good old boys to stop littering? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. <laughs> so that's and again, I'm not going to make a value judgment on what is the value of getting good old boys to be environmentalist versus what is the value of getting them to stop littering. I don't even consider it an either or. But what I will say is understand those are two completely different goals mm -hmm. with a completely different um, to do list. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really, really good piece uh, in the New York Times uh, from a couple of years ago about farmers like in the middle of America and how they're uh, talking about and dealing with climate change. And they will not use the phrase climate change like they know that like the, the things that are happening are happening, like the precipitation's changing, drier, all these things. And they're responding to it. And of course, they know it's real, but they talk about the weather and they think climate and climate change, they don't believe in that because like they like hate liberals and Democrats. And, and I think we're gonna see that in the, um, the after an aftermath analysis of what's, what happened in the places where uh, so-called progressive candidates weren't voted into office in places that voted for progressive policies. Right, because I think there's a lot of like, I hate Democrats, but sure, I'll support this thing. And so moving the question about like, oh, the United States isn't ready for so quote unquote so-called more progressive policies. I think we absolutely are, but we just say that they're super, like we package them differently and people are gonna be for things like, um, you know, decriminalizing drugs and shifting funding from the uh, conventional policing to other forms of um, uh, harm reduction or social outreach or something like that. But you have to like rebrand those things and tell a different story about them. Yeah, I mean, Yang's thing tanked, but uh, I gotta say freedom dividend is way easier to sell than um, universal basic income. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and Obamacare, right? Like I'm, that's got to be a Republican came up with that one because you are now eliminating half the nation from wanting free health care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we got a question from Naveen. Um, are you, oh, it's text. So I'll read it. So if you're an ethical company doing the right thing and then you have a competitor who is doing shady things and then that company gets all the customers, what do you do there? great that's a great question and i think what you do is you have a, a more nuanced view of competition mm. right because i think one of the when uh, when businesses think about their competitors uh, a lot of times they couch it in this real s them kind of way and um and they think about it in, in terms of like oh we're both trying to sell the same thing but if you think about who your customers are and what they need and want and you speak more to those customers in their language and in their terms, instead of like fighting your so-called competitor, um, uh, I think that that can really um, that can really help. I mean, if if people are doing really like shady things, yeah, it's it's um, it's totally like what we're seeing with taxis. It's super easy to um, to take customers when your product is not only more convenient, but cheaper because it's um, investor subsidized. But I think there are 
uh, I think you really, you look at how people think about the value. You look at how what you're providing fits into people's lives and start from there. Like in a sense, kind of like ignore your competitors. Like you can't totally ignore your competitors completely, but set them aside and have clarity. Cause I think when businesses get, um, into real binds with their competitors, um, it's because they haven't really had that clarity about why they're in business and what value they want to deliver. And they have to start inside and really focus on their relationship between who they are and why they exist and who they serve and why they want to serve those people. And if you start with that kind of clarity, that's where the strength comes from. And that's where being able to really build that strong brand that, that keeps people connected to you, right, um, comes in. It comes from really, really knowing that part. And I think a lot of organizations too quickly, and we've even seen this with some clients we've worked with, are just so focused on like me versus my competitor that the, their customer totally gets lost in the shuffle. Um, and they end up just focusing on the wrong things and like chasing after their competitor, um, as opposed to really, really understanding and again, doing the research to really understand um, not only the people that you want to interact with out in the world, but really understanding how your own business works like that can that can make you very, uh, very strong as an organization. Yeah, and the other the other thing I'll say to that and this this I kind of want to throw this out as kind of our, our final question. I don't see anyone else asking anything. So. I wanted to touch on this before when we were talking about is making money good? <laughs> and I want to reframe that a bit as what is the purpose of making money? Because I think that actually makes it good or bad, right? Yeah. Because uh, you have, you know, poor people who do nasty shit, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's not necessarily the best definer. Um, but uh, how do we, I, and the other thing with competitors, competitors inherently means you're coming from a scarcity mindset, right? It's sort of mm -hmm. like, well, if they're, the, the only reason they could be a threat to me as a competitor is if there's a limited number of customers, a limited number of people who want what I want and we're offering the exact same thing. So they either get it from me or they get it from them, right? And if that is truly the case, that is truly the case. But I think the, what you're sort of bringing up is, is that truly the case, right? And, <laughs> and, and again, like why? So I feel like that, that's kind of a missing piece of the puzzle because the framework we have for business in America um, skews very much toward a minority. Mike, you and I were talking about this before, a, very, a, a minority of actual businesses in America, right? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of businesses in America are small businesses, like by a ridiculous amount, and the mm -hmm. small minority of businesses are your giants like Google or whatever, right? And so if we think about the goal of, being, of doing business in America to make lots of money, okay, you get what we've got now. If you have a different goal though, <laughs> if the purpose of business, if the definition of business is different from that and it somehow encompasses good for mm -hmm. society, I'll just throw that out there um, yeah. as a starting point. Like, I feel like we're in a better, we're starting from a better place. Like to your, to, to a point you make often about, it's not important what you brainstorm. It's important. The question you ask, it's important mm -hmm. defining the problem. If we define, if we can define the problem of we want business to accomplish X rather than what it's been, or we want to think of business as accomplishing X. I think we're in a much better starting place. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I think it involves social good. <laughs> I think it yeah. involves money being part of like sustainability as opposed mm -hmm. to 
you know, buying a yacht or whatever. But, but that, I don't know. I feel like I want us to get yeah. to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a book I totally recommend. Jean Tirole, Economics for the Common Good. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a good book about the limits of market-based solutions. And he's a French person who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. It's, it's more fun than it looks, uh, at least to me. Um, so what, what I'd say is I think, I think something that's kind of gone really wrong is, uh, is again, that disconnect, uh, like look, not looking at the alignment among all of the parties to a transaction, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you go back, okay, sure. Henry Ford was a Nazi, but he was right about, he wanted his workers to make enough money to buy a car. Like he was kind of right about that. And you look at, um, like how wealth has been concentrated and the vast inequality. And you say, okay, it's, it's fine to be rich. Great. You want a boat, you want a nice house. Great. But look at like the, the difference in the multiplier and, you know, the discussion that especially, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been uh, participating in and leading uh, asking the question, is it possible to be an ethical billionaire? Because mm. if you're a billionaire, if you're a millionaire, okay, maybe you contributed that much value to the world. But if you're a billionaire, uh, maybe somebody's getting screwed, I think is the, uh, the sort of the premise there. So you can say, okay, so some people, so money is a really good incentive, you know, centrally planned economies and like communitarian things can kind of fall apart because the incentives are in a weird place. So you say, okay, we, for, to have um, innovation and, to achieve certain things in society, uh, maybe it is good that uh, there is the opportunity to get rich and it's not everybody's a comrade in gray clothing or something like that. So maybe maybe having a set, a number of brass rings is okay, but you know, it should be that, oh, I'm the CEO, I make seven times my lowest paid employee. Cause I think that's what like when Ben and Jerry started out, that was their rule. Maybe that's, maybe that's great. Maybe so you're still rich. You have a nice house. But I think we've gotten to this point of wanting to be on this obscene leaderboard to say, I'm not successful unless I have my own private space program. Like, why is it, why is it that, why is that the only concept we have of business of success? I would say, and not, Hey, <coughs> excuse me. I have a sustainable business. I employ 50, a hundred a thousand people. I live well. All my employees live well. Like there's that one guy who raised the minimum wage. I think he's in Seattle and he raised the, the minimum wage of anybody working in this company to $70,000 and he took a pay cut and he's doing great. <coughs> Excuse me. I wish I could remember his name, but he's on, he's on Twitter. And if you look up, you know, guy who raised lowest wage in company to 70 grand, see what happens. More people like that. But I think a lot of people go into business with that win-lose mindset. And, and that's where things really get bad. And then they take funding from people who yeah. want the 10X multiplier. <coughs> so we, we have just lost a concept of um, the social responsibility and participation of business in society. And I think that that was a concept we used to have more of and we've lost. So it's either, so what we're trying to do now is graft ethics onto businesses that exist to uh, return maximum, to maximize shareholder value. That's what I'll say. Yeah. So that's instead of saying, oh, what if we design the business from the beginning to 
generate returns in an ethical way and the way we define success yeah. is ethical. And I think, I think what's happening, I think you can't graft ethics onto a business whose core mission is maximizing shareholder value. I think sometimes there's a happy coincidence mm-hmm. where you have a successful business that also is mostly ethical, but I think it's really hard to optimize for both. Yeah. And I think that's like, I, I keep hearing about like incubators, this and accelerators that, and I'm like, if the advice you're getting at that stage doesn't involve ethics, guess what you're going to get. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, so I lied. There actually are a couple more questions if we can, if we can do this. So uh, sure, sure. we have, we have one uh, from Grigory. Do you want me to read that question or do you want to uh, read it yourself? Uh, yeah, I can, I can ask. Hi. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think we're kind of, um, it was a really a good indication of this, uh, the concept in the 2020. Like, I think we were all pushing for kind of more liberal policies and more transparent debate, more facts, all that stuff during the Democratic Convention. But then it sort of backfired uh, during the presidential debate because the Republicans were able to label us as uh, radicals it suddenly became Biden's a radical. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. He's the most boring guy who's been there for 100 years. Biden's a radical? How can they even do that, right? So to my question is, is the two-party system screwing us because the, the primary race is measured on one metric, but then we turn it around and then we lose on the general metric, uh, the one that really matters. So that's my, and how do we deal with that? Uh, you want me to take a stab at that? Uh, fixing I, I, America? Yeah, you, you take one, I take one. I th- I th- I've got some theories, but go ahead. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so a couple things there. One, um, I, I think the, the, uh, a mistake that uh, folks in politics and life fall into in that situation is accepting the framing, right? Like if somebody's like, oh, these policies are, are too radical, et cetera, et cetera. Don't refute that. And I've seen this, like this is, this on Twitter makes me bananas when, when somebody comes out with a claim and the, the counterclaim accepts that framing. You totally sidestep it. You just keep talking. You keep making a positive case and telling your story and just, and it can feel like you're letting them get away with something, but it's like, it's like, don't, don't even, unless it's the case of, uh, uh, you know, like, like the way you correct misinformation out there, you've got to be really careful that you don't actually amplify the initial argument or the initial false claim by repeating it to refute it. Like this is George Lakoff's whole thing. But, you know, if George Lakoff, I think we're really good at this, he would have been able to popularize his strategy for dealing with framing better. You know? Um, so that's one part of it is just, be, be rhetorically smarter. Like I think so many people like, and this, this is true in any circumstance. If somebody says something like, uh, and mischaracterizes something like do not like sidestep their framing, take it up a level. So I think, I think Biden did an okay job with this of not taking the bait. It's like, do not take the bait. Um, the other part of it about the two party system, it's like, well, yeah, but I I don't think we're getting rid of that anytime soon. So I think as much as we can, um, again, like with our storytelling and our rhetoric, find common ground. And this is not to say, because I think, 
I think when you say something like that, people think, oh, you're like catering to fascists. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like genuinely there are areas like I will say like my Trump supporting relatives, um, I like I have to find a, like me calling them up on the phone and calling them Nazis like that's not going to help anything. Right. But if you find ways to uh, to find out what's meaningful to people and um, and find new stories to tell, like don't refute the existing ones, but find I want I'm hoping I'm hoping we have, number one, a Biden administration. And I'm hoping that what he meant by you know, bringing America back together is creating a strong, positive vision of us all being part of the same country. And I think that's the only way we're not going to get people to agree that we were right and they were wrong. It's like set that aside and say, OK, here's my my positive vision, my story. I want you to believe my story and maybe you believe my story and the other guy's story and they're weirdly contradictory. But maybe over time, my story gets like more and more appealing to you, you know, and, and that's actually the way change happens. So I, I, I agree with the piece about framing and in the interest of time, I'm going to limit myself to one answer, <laughs> but, uh, but that answer is this, there is actually more than one way to think about politics and making decisions. Cause if you think about politics, as if you think about the purpose of parties, the most generous, <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, purpose I can give to parties is to arrive at political decisions. Right? It's one way to approach, hey, we need to make a decision about X. How do we do that? Okay, well, we'll have one side who takes position A and another side that takes position B and we'll duke it out. Right? That isn't actually the only way to arrive at viable policy decisions. So I'm going to tell you a short-ish story. Um, and I will preface this by saying, oh, by the way, yeah, we've got Democrats. Yeah, we've got Republicans. The largest party right now is independents. Like it's more or less a three-way split, but independents are actually the biggest, at least in terms of self-identifying group of people in the country right now. And I think there's a reason. Um, so a completely different way of approaching deciding policy for thorny questions. Um, let me tell you the story of V Taiwan. Um, not too long ago, Taiwan was uh, having one of those Hong Kong issues where they were going to have a new tax policy that was going to give China lots of power over it. And the citizens were upset and they, you know, had demonstrations in occupied parliament. Um, and instead of saying, oh, I know, let's get out some tear gas, the parliament said, oh, you know what? Why don't we work with you? In fact, hey, your leader, do you want to be on our cabinet? Sure. So they found a completely different new role um, around cyber something or other. And they come up with a new way of coming up with policy called V Taiwan. It's a process. And it involves lots of moving parts and lots of online and in-person uh, platforms. But at the end of the day, you begin by putting out a question. You have an issue you're trying to deal with. And let's say it's uh, Uber. Let's go back to that. And it literally was Uber. Um, we're going to need a way to deal with Uber. We have the same problem with it every city in, 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 the, in, in the world does. And they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put out just a series of statements. And we're going to text them to everybody who is involved at the same time. And it'll be things like, hey, do people who uh, drive Ubers, should they have a license to do that? You know, I, I feel that people who, who uh, drive Ubers should have a license to do that, right? Send that out. Now, here's the thing. You can't reply to that. All you can do is say yes, no, or pass. Right. So there's no trolling. There's no me saying outrageous stuff to make you angry. And you can come up with your own statement you want people to give responses to or yes or no's to. 
But again, there's no actual reply. So if I want to say something horrific, right, ain't nobody going to say anything but yes or no. That's the first kind of masterstroke. The second masterstroke is what I see when I'm watching this thing evolve is groups of people who either agree with or don't agree with statements. And those groups are not Republicans and Democrats. Those groups are like taxi drivers, Uber drivers, uh, taxi passengers, Uber passengers, right? And I start to see, well, only Uber drivers agree with this statement, but Uber drivers and taxi drivers agree with that statement. Okay, let's keep going. And what this incentivizes is moderate nuanced statements because only moderate nuanced statements actually get buy-in from multiple groups to the point where eventually you actually have one group that agrees with statements. And one of the statements was something like, I think that taxis should have the same five-star rating systems as Uber because we think that's one of the things that makes Uber good, right? Everybody agreed with that. Even Uber drivers agreed with that, right? So that stuff then turns into policy, right? And I'm skipping over a few steps, but the actual policy that came out of all of this was they were going to take the technology from Ubers and put them in taxis, which was not a Democrat issue, a Republican issue, no, no political party names came out in any of this. It was just people emergent, going back to that emergent behavior thing, emergently coalescing around one issue at a time and saying, here's how I feel about it, not based on my party affiliation, but based on me being a human in society interacting with this thing. And I guarantee you, Congress would never arrive at that solution. Twitter would never arrive at that solution. But because they framed it, they designed it, going back to how are you designing it from the beginning, they designed it specifically to emphasize this kind of emergent coalition and consensus. That's what they got. So I agree. We don't have to go with a two-party system. We're stuck with it for a while, mostly because that's where all the money is. But if we want to start chipping away and say, this is what we want to go toward, we can do that. <laughs> On the next episode, <laughs> Citizens United. <laughs> oh, I don't know that there is one. Okay, I think I think I will allow for one more here uh, because Mike wanted to uh, respond to something that someone else said, and that'll be our last question for the evening. Or I wanted to a ask a, a follow-up question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let me. See. So, so my follow-up question. I mean, Naveen asked a, a fantastic question, uh, which is, you know, what if you act all ethically and then your competitors don't? Um, what do you do? And I mean, Erica, you gave a fantastic answer to that. But my question back to Naveen would be, what what are you willing to do? What would you be willing to do in a situation like that? which um, I think is a, is a question that we all need to ask ourselves. What are we willing to do to be successful? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just, I mean, and I don't mean, and I'm not asking that to be a jerk. I, I actually do think it's, I mean, I, I think you're, you're a, a, a very good, decent person. Um, but I think it's a question that we don't ask ourselves enough when we enter into these situations. Are you asking it rhetorically, Mike, or are you asking me to answer that? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Um, so I, I think my my take is behaving ethically and having a successful business is possible, but it is not an easy problem because you're not in a working in a closed system, right? It's hard. Um, I think we need to figure out how to incentivize people to work on really, really hard problems like that. Mm -hmm. Because that is going to change the narrative for people to start coming in. Because I feel like 
in spite of all the fantastic things that you know big companies like facebook google did i don't think they have worked on really hard problems they have always pushed the hard problems under the carpet and let them fester and they did the easiest part right mm-hmm. so so that's one part the second part i always feel is that the best ones to do ethic, ethical stuff ethical businesses are reformed mastermind criminals <laughs> and my opinion on that is that because you you've been through that you know what what it takes to do the shady stuff when you reform you know how to battle the bad guys like uh, not to pick i mean i don't want to play harry potter example but it's like the, all the kids are learning the defense against dark cards you need to know how to defend against the dark characters <laughs> out there to survive <laughs> otherwise they will just eat you there's no there's you can't survive the business if you want to be a really business or not a capitalist there's there's a narrative out there which i i do not have an answer to but i've been thinking about a lot lately um and i mean i've seen this with designers i've seen this with you know business people whatever the hell you want to call yourself uh is that if i behave ethically i somehow get less or i somehow fail um and i one i i reject that because i've 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 seen it i've seen it happen the other way i've seen people succeed by doing the right thing but this myth has become ingrained in our society and it's become like a a, a very easy excuse for people to use and i mean you you hear people say you know well if i didn't do this somebody else would have mm-hmm. uh, i mean i've heard that come out of so many people's mouths and i i i'm trying to figure out how to how to flip this narrative because i think you know i think we we need to be out there saying you know if you if you behave ethically you you, you do great you make a lot more money that's not true that successful company Could i I, I think we have to acknowledge that if you're if i think we have to change the de- definition of success right if we say your definition of of success is um you know you are a, a billionaire and have the largest company all that stuff that then you're optimizing for that but i think if we have a different thing for people to optimize for and put and and give people a path because right now the clearest path like i don't think people know like from reading stories that there is a way to start a business that isn't taking too much venture capital and like rapid growth right I think people need different models and and different stories and different things to aspire to in different ways to define success because in the way that a lot of people are defining success there's no way to get there without a trail of bodies. Yeah. But I think we can say like what what is enough? Like what is good? How do we say you're the best at something so you have something to to reach for? uh without the max the profit maximization right if success is profit maximization then everything else gets thrown under the bus but if you're like oh success is like like balancing this whole set of factors the problem is sustainability is like stasis and super boring but i think if we change the framing and give people a path yeah people are going to want that but they're going to want those like the somebody else in the chat was talking about like symbolic goods right we have to create new symbolic goods for people to go for and articulate those because i think right now like it's a sense of like oh 
there's making a lot of money doing the bad thing or what? And we have to tell better stories about other kinds of success that yeah. aren't these like, oh, you give everything up. Um, you know, cause it, it feels like it's all extremes. It's all either yeah. like, oh, this couple uh, makes six figures and lives on $5,000 a year because they're in a yurt in a vacant lot and they give away all the money they make or these people have a hundred million dollars. We have very few stories about like, hey, these people are super happy and like they work, they make money, they have some nice things. Sometimes they eat meat, they eat mostly vegetables. You know, that sort of thing of like, the, it's like getting, stepping away from that that purity test mentality. All the, yeah. all the, all the billionaires I know are deeply unhappy people. Hey, deeply the- unhappy broken people two things you can write on a uh, census to put you in the highest uh, likelihood group for suicide, white and male. Um, I think that I kind of wanted to say this before when we were talking about the two party system, binary thinking will kill you. Um, And I kind of want to close it here, but like going back to that notion of, okay, like, what do I do? Like, how do I enter the business world and be ethical? How do I, how do we define success? Right. So uh, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. So Last August, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, going into therapy. And this, by the way, is what I imagine white America going into therapy might actually be like. So for me, part of the issue was I was walking into every scenario and considering it a judgment on whether I was a good or a bad person. Every interaction was me on trial. Am I a good person or a bad person? And I suspect a lot of people feel this way, one form or another, Democrat or liberal or or Republican. Mm -hmm. And we eventually got me to a place where I was thinking about values. I was thinking about not a binary of am I a good or a bad person, but a quaternary, or I don't even know what you call it, for how close am I in any given moment to my values? It's a proximity model, right? And fortunately, I had a pretty good handle on what my values were. So I kind of had that part out of the way. But then I could look at those and say, okay, rather than try to come up with a final binary judgment on my, you know, virtue, instead, let me say, okay, at this moment in this scenario, how am I living my virtues in the space I'm in right now? Uh, Or my values in the space I'm in right now, which is a much more nuanced and honestly, a much more happy question (laughs) and a much more healthy question. And to Erica's point, a more achievable one. You are never going to be completely a good person. You are never going to be completely a bad person, right? You are never going to get a final judgment on all of that, right? Mm -hmm. What you could have if you invest some time and energy into it is some sense of how proximate are the things I'm doing to my values. So when you are faced with nasty shit your competitor is doing, Mm -hmm. the question isn't how do I beat them? The question is, what do I do in this situation that aligns with my values? That's the only thing I'm trying to figure out here. And if that means, oh, guess what? The business has to close, then the business has to close. I'm not saying that's a good outcome, but I will guarantee you it's a better outcome than you not living in line with your values because that shit will catch up with you. And just to bring it all the way back to white supremacy, that's what I think reckoning with race really looks like. It looks like saying, hey, this is the America we think we live in, the myth we've told. And those, that myth aligns with a certain set of values. That myth doesn't come from nowhere. It aligns with the notion of people deserve to be free. It aligns with the deserve, a notion of people deserve to be safe. My family deserves to be safe, right? So, and everyone here, right, deserves those things. Now we can ask, well, 
Does the history of my race actually align with that? Does the wealth I have now come from a place that aligns with that? Like those kinds of questions versus, oh, am I racist? Am I too racist? Am I not racist enough? Like that, am I a good or bad person? Like, I'm not interested in white America answering the question, are you a good or a bad person? I'm very interested in white America asking the question of how close are we to our values and what are we going to do to get closer? So, <laughs> um, I want to thank uh, everybody who stuck around for yet another epic, I think potentially even more epic episode of uh, the Cognitive Bias podcast. Uh, but I think it's times to be ethic. Um, and in particular, Erica Hall, thank you so much for uh, being with us this week. Oh, yeah. Thank you. This was, I, I could talk about these topics forever. And, and we probably will. Um, thank you all so much for coming for the Cognitive Bias podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and we will see you next time. 